Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture by Dr. Elizabeth Punsi. Dr. Punsi is a licensed psychologist and professor at Gothenburg University. She presented this paper, Psychoanalysis and the Freedom of Thought, Hilda Doolittle, at Rewriting the Future, A Hundred Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis, a conference recently held in South Tyrol, Italy. The paper was originally written with Per Magnus Johansson, a licensed psychologist, psychoanalyst, and professor at University of Gothenburg. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I would just like to say that my colleague, Per Magnus Johansson, he unfortunately couldn't attend the conference. Uh, so I will have to give this presentation myself. So if I say we, I refer to Per Magnus Johansson. So we have to imagine him here. And he is a, centra- he is a psychoanalyst and he is an associate professor of history of ideas and he's also a very central person for psychoanalysis in Sweden so he for example was part of the committee who translated all of Freud's work into Swedish so uh, we have to imagine him here and the speak is called Freud and Hilda Doolittle freedom of thought and speech and I will um, give a perspective on the dialogue between the poet Hilda Doolittle, known as H.D., and Sigmund Freud, and specifically about the, uh, a book by Hilda Doolittle called Tribute to Freud, in which she describes her analysis with Freud and their evolving relationship. And this uh, book is very much concerned with myths, Uh, religion, mysticism, and uh, I will try to pay attention to these themes. So it has been estimated that Freud over the years had a total of 120 patients in analysis. There were more men than women, but the difference was marginal. The patients were in analysis in different ways. Some met Freud only at one occasion. Others had an analytic conversation with him during a walk, as in the case of the composer Gustav Mahler. Other patients he met six times per week, from a few months up to a couple of years. Some patients made pauses during the analytic work, as Hilda Doolittle. Some analysants became public figures. One is Ida Bauer, known under the pseudonym Dora, from fragments of an analysis of a case of hysteria. In 1909, Freud published Analysis of a Phobia in a Five-Year-Old Boy about Herbert Graf, known as Little Hans. The same year, he wrote Notes upon a Case of Obsessional Neurosis about Ernst Lanzer, known as the Ratman. Then we have the case study from the history of an infantile neurosis, about Sergei Pankayev, the Wolfman. 
in a footnote written in 1923, in conjunction with the revision of the case study DORA. Freud writes that the case studies were published with the patient's explicit permission, and in the case of little Hans, with the father's permission. Some patients commented on his texts about them and on their experiences of analysis. This holds true for little Hans and the Wolfman, and although to a lesser degree for Dora. And I think this demands ethical reflection. What do we as researchers or clinicians do when we write about individuals? A substantial group of patients never, con never commented on their analysis. There are also those who, after Freud's death, wrote about their analysis. One was the poet Hilda Doolittle, also known as HD, a pen name given to her by Isra Pound. In the volume Tribute to Freud, she gives rich descriptions of her experiences and understandings of her analysis with Freud. Hilda Doolittle was born in 1886 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in the US. She moved to London in 1911. Her father was a professor in astronomy. Her mother was a music teacher. Hilda Doolittle was engaged to Ezra Pound and was also published by him. In 1913, she married Richard Aldington, another modernist author. They were only married for a short time. She had a daughter, Perdita, born in 1919. Hilda Doolittle's lover, Cecil Gray, a music critic, author, and composer, was the father. Hilda Doolittle lived in an unconventional way with a woman, Anna Winifred Ellerman, called Briar, from 1918 to her death in 1961. Both of them had other lovers, and both were deeply involved in poetry, literature, and psychoanalysis. Briar was very wealthy, and she married the author Robert McAlmon in 1921. They divorced in 1927, and during that time, both Doolittle and Briar slept with Robert McAlmon. After the divorce, Briar married Kenneth McPherson, and together with Hilda Doolittle, they traveled through Europe as a menagerie of three. And together, they established the film journal Close Up and produced movies. After the war, Hilda Doolittle and Briar didn't live together anymore, but remained in contact with each other. Hilda Doolittle was suffering from psychological pain and occasional breakdowns almost her whole life. In 1933, she traveled to Vienna to undergo analysis with Freud. She returned for another analysis in 34. She had an interest in Freud's theories since 1909 and read his works in the original German versions. Breyer supported the psychoanalytic movement, both practically and financially, and also took part in rescuing psychoanalysts from Nazi persecution. Freud had a close relationship to Hilda Doolittle and communicated in a very personal way with her. In 1933, 
when Doolittle mentioned the last year of the Great War during an analytic hour. She wrote that Freud said he had reason to remember the epidemic as he lost his favorite daughter. She is here, he said, and he showed me a tiny locket that he wore fastened to his watch chain. Doolittle also had a relationship to Freud's family. He wrote to her in personal matters. I'm sorry, you never saw our house and garden here in Grinsing, he wrote to her in May 35. Ernst Freud, Freud's son, and his family had settled in London. And Freud was gratified to hear that Hilda Doolittle, then living in London, was in touch with them. He considered her as part of his family, an intellectual woman with whom he could share experiences from psychoanalysis and from his reading. In his diary, he writes about both Hilda Doolittle and Briar and mentions presents he buys for birthdays. He was also pleased that the analytic work showed results. He once wrote to Hilda Doolittle, I'm deeply satisfied to hear that you are writing, creating. That is why we dived into the depths of our unconscious minds, I remember. And I think it's interesting that he writes our unconscious. When Freud was 77, he could still impress Hilda Doolittle with his vitality. The professor told me, Doolittle noted in her journal, that if he lived another 40 years, he would still be fascinated and curious about the impulses and variations of the human mind or soul. It's obvious that the contact between them was open and they discussed matters related to poetry, mythology, religion, relationships, and how to find a place in a violent world. Moreover, Freud in the later years savored the companionship of many remarkable and accomplished women, like Hilda Doolittle. We could add Louis-André Salomé, Helene Deutsch, Joanne Rivière, Marie Bonaparte, and of course his daughter Anna. And these women, and many more women, left their mark on psychoanalysis. In 1910, when members of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society were reviewing their bylaws, Isidore Sager opposed to the admission of women. Freud firmly disagreed. He saw it as a serious violation if women were excluded by principle. Freud lived in an age when political movements connected to the trade unions, feminism and suffrage were on the rise. The Jewish population gained access to universities and came closer to the public sphere. Within that structure, Freud gave both men and women access to a room in which they could think and speak freely about themselves and their deviances from the norm system that characterized the society they lived in. Such deviances concerned both thoughts and behaviors and stimulated Freud to think actively and freely. In the connection to Hilda Doolittle, we can see that he's not afflicted with any kind of inhibition and he doesn't express judgmental moralism. Hilda Doolittle and Freud came from different backgrounds. She was raised in the context of the Moravian church 
and Freud had a Jewish background. Yet there were similarities. Freud came from Moravia, just as Hilda Doolittle's maternal ancestors. Moreover, their backgrounds were connected to spiritual and mystical traditions. The volume Tribute to Freud by Doolittle is centered on such themes and how these and also Freud's collection of antiquities became salient in the analysis. And it should be noted that Freud came from a Jewish background in which both Kabbalah and Chassidism was integrated. Both Doolittle and Freud abandoned the faith and traditions of their upbringing. Freud didn't continue to celebrate Jewish holidays or keep dietary laws. We do not, however, know whether his wife Martha continued to hold the traditions. It's well known that Freud once expressed that he didn't want her to light the Shabbat candles. This does, however, not necessarily mean that Martha accepted this. We don't know. It's also known that Freud owned many pieces of Judaica and books about Jewish mysticism. Freud declared himself godless and was integrated in the majority society, but he firmly identified as Jewish. Hilda Doolittle abandoned her childhood religion and came to embody the lifestyle of modernity. She didn't hide her bisexual and polyamorous relationships. Freud lived a steady family life. The, difference, the differences didn't hinder Freud from, according to Hilda Doolittle's own words, being able to listen and speak to her in a way she could relate to. The unfamiliar was a point of departure for their mutual reflection. Hilda Doolittle had suffered from writer's block, and this was a reason for her analysis. During the analysis, she had an intense correspondence with Breyer. Freud tried to stop her from this, but he didn't succeed. He thought it could hinder the psychoanalytic progress, uh, but she didn't obey, and we can be happy for that today because their, their correspondence is very, very interesting both concerning their relationship, but also uh, the evo evolution, um, the progress of psychoanalysis and also her relationship to Freud and his family. Uh, and um, in, in, these, in this correspondence, she describes the analysis and her evolving relationship to Freud and his family. She, for example, writes about Freud's attachment to his dogs and how he, once out of concern for them, threw himself to the floor, and she describes that keys and coins were flying out of his pockets. Freud wanted to give Doolittle and Breyer, and they were both, wow, that's wonderful, it's a sign. <laughs> I'm also an animal lover. I have a dog at home, oh my dear. Um, and Doolittle and Breyer were both animal lovers, and he wanted to give them a puppy but they were unable to care for it at the moment, and they were very sad about this. So Hilda Doolittle shows us a Freud who is free, open-minded, personal, and humorous, which is a much-needed counterweight to this widespread perception of Freud as austere, judgmental, and conservative. And during the Second World War, Hilda Doolittle stayed in London. At the end of the war, she went to Switzerland. In the spring of 1946, 
she suffered a severe mental breakdown and stayed in a clinic until the autumn. She was in existential psychotherapy with Irish Heights from 1953 to 1960. And her relationship to Isra Pound was a substantial part of this analysis. Um, and during this time, she wrote uh, a book called End to Torment, which was published after her death. And this is her memoir of Isra Pound and their engagement when they were very young and how their relationship evolved. She spent the rest, rest of her life in Switzerland, but visited the United States in 1960 to collect an American Academy of Arts and Letters medal. She suffered a stroke in July 61 and died some months later in Zurich. Her ashes were returned to the US and she's buried in Bethlehem. Freud admired creative writers and seemed to have a longing toward creative writing himself. He was balancing on the border of science and artistic expression. In 1930, he received the prestigious Goethe Prize and in his acceptance speech delivered by Anna Freud, he described that Goethe had insight in the importance of early emotional bonds, sexual desire, and the repressive power of guilt, and thereby anticipated psychoanalysis. In Creative Writers and Daydreaming, published 1908, Freud writes about fantasy and reality, and expresses that knowledge about the source of creativity and the constitution of the creative person seems out of reach. He describes that the writer creates a fantasy world that is taken just as serious as reality. Unsatisfying experiences might thus be transformed into creative work and ultimately into creations. Freud, however, notes that overwhelming fantasies might be a breeding ground for suffering and symptoms. If a delusional world gains prominence, the capacity to deliberately engage in creative work and communicate it might be hindered. And here, it should be noted that from a psychoanalytic perspective, the capacity to be productive is seen as connected to mental health. In 1920, Doolittle and Breyer stayed on the island of Corfu. One afternoon, Hilda Doolittle saw a figure on the wall of their hotel room. She saw a head and shoulders, an illuminated template. Thereafter, various figures appeared, and this is described in tribute to Freud. She wanted to understand this experience, which she called the writing on the wall. She saw it as an example of spiritual realism. She expressed that she and Freud never argued about transcendental phenomena, but rather immersed in dialogues about myths, mysticism, and religion. But she described a contraposition concerning their different views on the writing on the wall. Freud saw the experience as dangerous. And Hilda Doolittle writes that Freud had a materialistic side and strived toward rationalistic thinking. We suggest that since the dialogues between Doolittle and Freud are centered on mystical and religious themes, they need to be understood with reference to their religious heritage. 
And here we focus on Freud's refusal to see the writing on the wall as real and his Jewish heritage. And we suggest that when he refuses to see the vision as real, it could be that he also strives to draw her attention to her creative work instead of to fantasies that might be overwhelming. Doolittle describes that Freud encouraged her to write, to have confidence in herself and her writing. And perhaps Freud wished for her to abandon the perception of the vision as real, so that she became less occupied with it and instead could engage in fantasy, create creativity and writing. And we also suggest that Freud's resistance toward actually believing in an image could be understood with reference to the position of images in the Jewish tradition. The second commandment concerns idolatry and the absolute prohibition of producing and believing in images of God. And cultural critic Neil Postman, he wrote that the second commandment underlines the importance of thought and speech. And I was very interested about your, your speech, but yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. uh, and moreover, Postman writes that images might be powerful. And, uh, and as Miss um, Rogers said here, here uh, that they might be very powerful and might influence us, the, the, the images. Um, so Postman writes that images are powerful and might be used by individuals and organizations that wants to exploit us. Therefore, culture needs to be protected, not against images, but against such intrusive images. The use position toward images reminds us about this, Postman writes. Both Freud and Postman were secular use, yet they reflected on the Jewish heritage. Postman acknowledges that the Jewish tradition invokes sensitivity toward intrusive images. Such sensitivity might have influenced Freud to see the writing on the wall as dangerous. This doesn't mean that it was dangerous, but it implies that he, he, he could use this to support Hilda Doolittle to be creative. So such a perception might have strengthened his attempts to support Doolittle to write, to create. She had indeed suffered from writer's block and she wrote that the analysis helps her overcome it. And our intention with this interpretation is of course not to present Jewish tradition as superior to any other tradition, but to acknowledge that certain traditions emphasize certain prerequisites of culture and what it means to be human. And accordingly, varying traditions open up for multifaceted insights. And we would finally like to stress the fact that Sigmund Freud, a Jewish medical doctor, academically trained, married, a father of six children, living almost his entire life in the same city, Vienna, met a patient, Hilda Doolittle, poet, a woman, bisexual, who had an unconventional lifestyle, always in exile, restlessly moving from one place to another, from one country to another, without finding a stable home or relationship. But they found a mutual meeting point. They shared something. 
They met each other in dialogue, in the emergence of psychoanalysis, in the tension between similarities and differences, and in the right to talk about psychological suffering and transcend it in writing. Freedom of thought and speech united them. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard the lecture, Psychoanalysis and the Freedom of Thought, Hilda Doolittle, read by Elizabeth Punsey, at Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis, a conference recently held in South Tyrol, Italy. Elizabeth Punzi is a licensed psychologist and a lecturer at the Department of Psychology at Gothenburg University. She leads a project concerning heritage and health at the Center for Critical Heritage Studies and teaches psychoanalytic theory, psychology of religion, and qualitative research methods, as well as other topics. Her research concerns clinical practice, critical psychology, and psychiatry, the importance of expressive arts for health and recovery, as well as Jewish identity, heritage, and congregational life. This paper presented was written with Per Magnus Johansson, a licensed psychologist, psychoanalyst, an associate professor in the history of ideas at the University of Gothenburg. Dr. Johansson teaches psychoanalytic theory, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and Foucault's discourse, and many other topics. He is also in private practice in Gothenburg. His research mainly concerns the history of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, and psychiatry. You can find more work from Drs. Punzi and Johansson in Rendering Unconscious the book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from our publisher, trapart.net. That's T-R-A p-a-r-t dot net. For more, please visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or our website, renderingunconscious.org. elevated sphere.
remains within its own perimeters. Leaking light where possible, but mainly surviving in silence. The emotional impact of these fears is depending on the leverage of the two diametrical forces involved. Concrete darkness and abstract darkness. There is a force field that integrates the two, but only the most sensitive of souls can perceive them. sensitive parts of those souls. The definition of the dark night of the soul truly lies in its own negation. Like a flower having lost its petals but still manages to attract a bee. The attractional shield or structure is but a framework for the soul. Experimentations are taken directly from the third mind itself, such as writing into four quadrants and rearranging them while others are inspired. Foisy and Sinclair explore ideas posited by Burroughs and Geisen and expand them. For example, Burroughs speaks about the essence of authors being words and encourages us to cut up our favorite writers and poets, rearranging their own, yourself into a monkey, leaping from branch to branch, shifting person, Jaguar form, up ahead of you and waiting, but also commodified in, where so much of, of course, first movement, I wonder, hologram is now a being built differently, analysis, dream, and body are voice, the lungs, I do mean atomic, the third mind movements and desperate for change, she shattered a mask of my crime. Research of quantum biophysics, a statement of intent in shadow work, dancer and a magician to ceaselessly, darkness I acknowledge mine, the simple ritual formula required, side of, and focus in very, very tight, or at least it is easier for, and they are forced, Human nature can, not master of his own, Freud's revolutionary situation. We can expose the paradoxical nature of our life, circumstances, and discover tantra, theories. Jung had a reputation, the same titled the self's vision of enlightenment, as a I joined was transferred
possible for a peaceful yet aggressive disruption in all these force fields. And so, the species breed in perpetual agony, conscious of finality and unconscious of fidelity. quickly realize that there is no such thing. There is no peaceful yet aggressive disruption. But the vision of it shines brightly in the darkness of this massive negation. perceive and us to grow the idea that one archaic in September 1984 and within months book department working under the he proved to be an inspirational mentor and a lasting influence some days I find solace in smashed against a rock tinged nationalistic discourse of and art set free But before we begin, I'd like to read a little something. Caitlin and I are both with an invocation of sorts to situate ourselves and consecrate the space. Suggested covering of certain snakes below the waist though. Bowie reinvented himself throughout his career, shifting persona, entered, he focused on locating intersections interactions, creating the bridge into the next, time travel techniques into his practice as well, and he went through the, called the San Francisco with a friend of mine. Here are the deadly aircraft, hard fighting infantry, raging naval battles, yours to thrill to when you choose from this outstanding selection of military books. Represent immeasurable freedom sums me up. If I could, knowingly, subtly as exhibition of modern art, disciple their element of the detail of my, in psychoanalytic terms, encounters when delving, be able to lick a look back, even sacred moments. 